Welcome to Menopause Reimagined. I'm your host, Andrea Donsky. I'm a nutritionist for more than 16 years and I'm in menopause. I'm a menopause educator and avid menopause researcher. The goal for this show is to empower you as you enter into this phase of life so that you can take control of your health and your symptoms. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Tanya Dempsey, a board-certified internal medicine and integrative and holistic medicine doctor. She received her MD degree from the John Hopkins University School of Medicine and her Bachelor of Science degree from Cornell University. She completed her internal medicine residency at New York University Medical Center. In 2011, she founded her own integrative medicine practice, which has evolved into AIM Center for Personalized Medicine, a destination medical center in Purchase, New York, focusing on complex multi-system diseases. Now, here's Dr. Dempsey. Welcome to the show, Dr. Dempsey. Thank you for having me. We're going to talk histamine today, and we're going to talk about histamine, how it relates to perimenopause and menopause, but let's start from the beginning. What is histamine and why is it important in our body? So histamine is actually, it's a chemical. Um, it's a, uh, a chemical that is, um, that can come from food that you eat. So there's food that contains histamine or particularly older food tends to increase the amount of histamine it has. Um, the histamine is a neurotransmitter in our brain um, and, it, and it controls some of our, our neurologic processes. It interacts with other neurotransmitters. Um, and it is, it is a chemical that's produced by several different cells in our body. Okay. The cell that I tend to talk about the most, it's, it's sort of my obsession, is the mast cell. Okay. And, and so the mast cell can release histamine um, and the mast cell can release lots of other chemicals. So we can focus on histamine because it's the mast cell producing histamine. There are other cells that actually also release histamine in response. It's sort of like a reaction. Um, we'll, we can talk about that. Um, we certainly can get histamine from food and we certainly can have difficulties breaking down histamine, metabolizing it. And so that's where we run into problems. So the, so the bottom line is that histamine is a really important chemical. It's something that we need. Um, you can't have no histamine. Um, I think about in the brain, histamine controls things like wakefulness, um, appetite. Um, there are all these different things that histamine is involved in, all these processes. So we do need it. Um, it's when we, we run into a problem when we have too much, right? And that's true of anything, right, in our bodies, right? Too much or too little, not good, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, So the way I like to think about our sort of um, talk about histamine is, so for a lot of, actually for years before I understood the mast cell component of this and something called mast cell activation syndrome or MCAS, I was focused on histamine because it was related to an interest of mine, which was, which was methylation. Mm. So I would do talks about methylation and one of the pathways actually in methylation is something that um, methylates histamine. And it is one of the ways that your body can get rid of it. So I would focus on and I would talk about, well, if you don't have proper methylation support, then you're not going to be able to metabolize histamine down one pathway. There are basically two main ways that the body deals with histamine. Okay. Again, whether that's histamine that's made in the body or it came from the outside, we have to either methylate it or we have to uh, digest it. We have to break it down enzymatically. In the, and mostly that's happening in the gut. And so we run into a problem when you either can't methylate it to become methyl histamine or you don't have enough of the enzyme called diamine oxidase, which is again, is primarily in the gut, but is definitely found in other parts of the body. And that's an enzyme that breaks down histamine. And so what should happen is your body should be able to break it down, methylate it, and then it gets eliminated, right? Through, from the body. Um, so again, we're talking about, you know, the issues really come down to people who have trouble um, dealing with histamine. That's, that's one part of this, okay? And I think it's important because again, histamine does have so many roles. In the gut, if you have too much histamine, um, you can have inflammation, you can have pain, you can have um, change in your bowels, it could, it could cause uh, food sensitivities and food intolerances. So, you know, in the gut, it's a problem. Histamine can cause inflammation elsewhere in the body, right? So it's inflammatory, but I think that it's it's to really understand the hormonal piece of this and how it's linked to the hormones. I think you need to understand um, the primary um, 
producer of, of histamine in the body. And that's that mast cell. Okay. Because it's really the mast cell that is interacting with hormones, not the histamine per se. Okay. So, so, so you can yeah. please explain what ma- what a mast cell is. Okay. So it's a white blood cell. Um, we have white blood cells that help us protect us from, you know, uh, infections and the environment. And these are um, white blood cells that live in our tissue, in our organs. We have white blood cells in our in our bloodstream, and these happen to be really um, focused in on in all our tissues and organs. They're on our skin, in our skin. They're in a respiratory tract. They're in the GI tract. Uh, they're in the nervous system. They're in the genital urinary system, right? So they're in the vagina and the and the uterus, around the ovaries. So they're basically everywhere, and they're they're everywhere in those places where there's a um, uh, an an interaction with the environment. So they're there actually. They're your your defense mechanism against infections the flu, COVID, whatever, your mast cells are there ready. They're in the respiratory tract. So if you breathe something in, they're ready to go. Right. And one of their ways that they defend is they they actually uh, do something called degranulate. They make different granules of these mediators. Histamine is one, but there are over a thousand different mediators that mast cells can make. Okay. And when it they explode, they release, they release these granules in the place where they're they're reacting. And unfortunately, right, on one hand, it's trying to protect us. On the other hand, too much of all those chemicals, they're cytokines, they are they're mostly inflammatory, they will feed back on our on our body and cause inflammation. Hmm. Mast cells are involved in allergy, for instance. Right. So again, they're in the respiratory tract. If you're allergic to let's say pollen, um, you will have um uh, a, you'll have antibodies against pollen. Those antibodies will go to the mast. So part of that allergic reaction is releasing is releasing histamine. And um, the histamine causes the nose to get inflamed and congested, causes the itchy eyes, causes even like the asthma or trouble breathing, the hives or the itchiness. So that's the mast cell. So, so involved in allergy, but what we're talking about are, are is a condition really that where there's dysfunctional mast cells. So the mast cells are not only protecting you from the environment, but but people who have this mast cell activation syndrome are those that um, have, uh, their, their mast cells are more reactive. Mm-hmm. They're more dysfunctional and they're releasing histamine and all these chemicals, maybe when they shouldn't, or maybe the signals are sort of more than they should be. I don't know if, I hope that sort of that makes, makes sense. sense. That makes sense. So the mast cells, so if we think about Again, they're, they're, we need them, sort of like we need histamine. You can't have no mast cells. Um, but again, too much of a good thing uh, can get you in trouble. So the mast cells are actually involved in um, growth and development of our tissue or cells or bones in a good way. Um, they're involved in helping you fight off infection and deal with toxins in the environment. But in normal people who have just regular mast cells, they will react, uh, let's say, to uh, an infection. And then once the infection is over, their mast cells will reset and will sort of be ready for the next event. What we're talking about is people, and, and in particular women, with mast cell activation syndrome, who don't have normal mast cells at baseline. So they get infection, it may take them longer to fight the infection, they may have remnants of stuff for a long time after the infection, the mast cells are not resetting. Right. And in fact, they are at the threshold where they're gonna be more likely to react now to something else than right. maybe they wouldn't have reacted to before. Hmm. And the way mast cells react with the environment is that they have these um, receptors on their surface. And these receptors sort of send them the, these signals. So if there's an antibody for an allergen like pollen, that that antibody will bind to a receptor on the mast cell, send that signal, okay, release histamine. We have so many receptors, hundreds of receptors possible on these mast cells. And those mast cells there, if we're talking about women's issues, women's, women health issues, right? We're, we're thinking about mast cells in the, uh, the uterus, in the ovaries, in the vagina, in the vulva, like in that whole 
genital urinary area and the bladder, those mast cells may be even more um, uh, likely to have receptors for hormones. So the mast cells have receptors then to estrogen, progesterone, different androgens, testosterone. Um, and so if you imagine that these mast cells are now in contact with, with hormones in these areas of the body, you can imagine that if those mast cells were maybe a little more dysfunctional, um, maybe they were a little more reactive, it wouldn't take much to set them off. Mm, okay. Much estrogen, let's say in estrogen dominant states, they're very common in perimenopause. Um, too little estrogen in menopause, um, too much testosterone in polycystic ovarian syndrome. So these, these different hormones that, you know, again, are with the mast cell sending different signals. Now, every, every woman is going to be different. Everyone, some women are going to be more sensitive to estrogens. Some women may be more sensitive to testosterone, some with progesterone. And that's why treating with hormones, I think it's very, it's a little tricky, at least in my patient population, because it's hard to know exactly what's going to be good for their mast cell. So generally, for instance, progesterone tends to be stabilizing for this mast cell, whereas estrogen may be activating. However, too little estrogen might not be good either. And so it's about finding the balance. Okay. But, I, but I think that the point being is that I think that the symptoms that many women have related to histamine during the perimenopausal and menopausal period is really probably more, more likely due to mast cell activation syndrome as opposed to just histamine. So there are all these other chemicals that the mast cells are making that's probably driving some of that symptomatology. So would the, would the syndrome come on at that phase? I mean, we know that when we go into perimenopause and menopause, so many things are changing in our body, right? Our organs are changing, things are happening, our digestive system, our gut health, everything is changing. Would you say that this is another thing that could be potentially happening as we get into this phase of life? Like it's the onset or is it something that's exacerbated? So more likely than not, it's exacerbated. So it's unusual to develop new onset mast cell activation syndrome at this age. Okay. In general, the mast cells are definitely more likely to flare, activate during those times in a woman's life. And we're talking about women, but you know, it could apply to men as well. I just want to be clear on that. But um, during puberty, the mast cells are more likely to get activated during pregnancy or after pregnancy, during perimenopause. So we know that these cycles in the women's life is going to create a, an uh, environment where there are shifts in hormones more so than in other times in the woman's life. And those shifts are what's uh, potentially setting off uh, the underlying problem or these dysfunctional mast cells. So to be clear, again, all women have mast cells, all women's mast cells can react, but we're talking about women who are particularly symptomatic, okay. right? People who, women who are um, having huge estrogen swings, tremendous breast tenderness, the size of their bra increases three, you know, three sizes over the course of the, of their, you know, the second part of their cycle. Um, they're gaining weight. They lose 10 or 15 pounds, they gain 10 or 15 pounds, or they lose five pounds and they gain 10 or 15 pounds. And so this is right. I'm like, know? hello, are you talking about me? Like, this is like, this is so interesting because Continue, please, because I'm just like, oh, my God. Yes, yes, yes. But go ahead. And I'm sure so many people who are listening here are going, yes, that's me. So please. Sorry, I didn't want to interrupt you, but I'm just like, whoa, this is like yeah, that's so familiar. And I never heard this before. <laughs> well, I'm so glad to expose you to it because, you know, it's, it's interesting. I'll, I'll do a little sidetrack for a second. You know, when I started my career as an internist, my interest was in women's health and I was doing regular general internal medicine. And I was, I was actually treating, my interest was really polycystic ovarian syndrome. So I was treating a lot of women with hormonal imbalances. And I remember over time, I would start to notice the trends. Isn't it interesting that my PCOS patients often have some kind of allergic-like phenomena? But when I send them to the allergist, their allergy tests are usually normal. 
They might have asthma. So I have them on you know, medication for that. Um, they are all vitamin D deficient. They Many of them are B12 deficient. Many of them have um, difficulty losing weight despite a lot of effort. Um, and you know what would happen is I started over time, started to realize that, wait a second, there's something more to this PCOS. I started seeing increased thyroid issues, hypothyroidism. And I'm like, okay, so where, what is the connection? And the connection, when I discovered mast cell activation syndrome, it was like, for me, like a light bulb because wow. it explained everything. You have all these mast cells in the ovaries. The ovaries are overproducing these hormones or underproducing, right? And then we have the adrenal glands involved and also overproducing or underproducing. And now we have mast cells in all those areas. And so the mast cells are, are so interesting. There's so much data, so much literature looking at the role of mast cells in the metabolism. Mm. Mast cell activation syndrome, histamine, and the other mediators that they make may actually cause abnormal blood sugar regulation, insulin resistance, obesity, and, and other things. And so then it became, oh, wait, PCOS equals mast cell activation syndrome for wow. me. And, and then the women with PCOS often go on in the perimenopausal period to have more difficulties. You know, they <laughs> are losing hair. They start, right. They start gaining more weight. The estrogen dominance is bad. They get the middle, you know, the, 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 what is it called? The, the tire around their, you know, their yeah, abdomen midsection, midsection. And, and sure. So the hormones themselves play a role. Um, we know with age, insulin resistance gets worse. We know, you know, so there's just some things that are it's like compounded, but then you take mass cell activation syndrome, correct. Mm, yeah. And then you add this layer of inflammation. You have this mm -hmm. layer of reactivity that, that is a little bit, a little bit harder to, to manage. But, but the good news is that it's an area that's been not really been explored enough. And so now that if we can treat women with these problems and these conditions, not just through hormones, but through dealing with whether it's histamine or the mast cell activation, then we're already changing, you know, the outcome for, for these women. And that's, what's exciting to me. I am like, you know, for those of you who are listening on our podcast, if you do want to head over to YouTube, we have this posted on YouTube, you can see us. Um, and you'd be, you'd see me like nodding the whole time going, okay, checkbox. Check. I mean, I had PCOS since I'm 18 years old. Like I literally, I'm just like, yep, yep. And you talk about methylation, the MTHFR gene. Like I'm like, yep, me, I don't, I don't methylate properly. I'm just like, great. <laughs> like, and that's why I was excited to um have this conversation because I think a lot of women especially for those of us who have PCOS or are having all these issues. I mean, I always joke, I know I joke around, which is not a funny joke, but I'm like, I think I had all 85 plus signs and symptoms of menopause. Like I had a really difficult time during perimenopause, but being a nutritionist, I really focused heavily on my nutrition, right? So it, <laughs> I see you're nodding. So please go ahead. <laughs> no, no, no. But th that's, that's the thing. I mean, you're, you know, a lot of people um, in this, in this field, patients, start to figure out their bodies, right? Yeah. And they start to understand what can they change to sort of calm things down. Diet is definitely a huge component. But as you know, I don't I don't have to speak for you. You know that every patient is going to be different, yeah, right? 100%. You know, eliminating these foods for one patient may not work for another patient. Exactly. And it's figuring out what is going to calm down and help inflammation. What is going to support methylation? What's going to support you know, the liver and other detox pathways. Um, what, how are we going to support the immune system through this? Because the mast cells are part of the immune system. And that is the one thing that I think hasn't been appreciated that PCOS, perimenopause, menopause are immune, uh, immune processes, essentially. There's immune dysregulation mm -hmm. during those periods of time of a woman's life. And so we never think about it as immune. We think about it as hormonal, Definitely, right? Um, definitely, there's um, a lot of, uh, for some women, some neuropsychiatric type symptoms, anxiety, food cravings, depression. Um, so these, 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 um, these, the symptomatology, I guess the way I think about it is really, yes, it is hormonal. 
it's it's causing all this other you know stuff to go awry but the but the root actually may be the immune system and the immune system's inability to react appropriately to its environment so are you saying it's an autoimmune like so is that like is that the connection here it's like a okay you're you're <laughs> Well, no, I, I'm laughing because I do have a slide when I do, do my presentations. I do have a slide showing some data associating PCOS with autoimmunity. Interesting. But I want to be, but I want to be clear. I want to be okay. clear. I don't think it's an autoimmune disease. Okay. Um, I think there's a slightly increased risk of autoimmune diseases in women with PCOS. But right. more importantly, mast cell activation syndrome is not theoretically an autoimmune process, but it is an immune dysfunction. Okay. And for sure, MCAS for sure. So, so the point being is that PCOS, women with PCOS and who have more difficulty with PMS, perimenopause and menopause are those that um, are at, at higher risk um, of immune issues. So if I take a good history, a lot of my you know women patients who have these issues, look, perimenopause is not an issue. I'm talking about a lot of women have issues, but there's there's a particular subset of, of women who are struggling even more than other mm. women who are, a lot of women suffer, right? Yeah. I just want to, I want to clarify that this is maybe like another level. Yeah. Um, when you go back in history, you know, they often have signs that there's immune dysfunction. Again, they, they might have, they may be more reactive to medications or, or food or herbs, or, you know, they're the ones that tell you, oh yeah, I took that and that wasn't good. Um, they, they, they might be more susceptible to infection. They may be less susceptible in fact, to infection. They may be the ones that say they never get sick, or they may be the ones that say, wow, I just, I'm always getting sick. That's just two sides of immune dysfunction, an overactive immune system, an underactive immune system. The mast cells are sort of what I would call overactive, but it's not an autoimmune process. So autoimmune is like you're producing antibodies and you're attacking yourself. And again, there isn't, there isn't a slight association between PCOS and like autoimmune thyroid conditions like Hashimoto's. Hashimoto, I just found out this year I have Hashimoto's. So not, that's not an uncommon mm. association. Um, and the mast cells are, are probably involved in that process. They talk to other cells, sending signals. Oh, you need to make antibodies to the thyroid. These are obviously not good antibodies, um, but, but that may be coming from the dysfunction of the mast cell. But again, the mast cell is not actually making the antibodies. The mast cell is, is just reacting to what it thinks is, is perceiving is bad in the environment. So but how then, would somebody, so how would somebody know so they're, so, you know, our listeners or their viewers are watching, they're going, okay, this sounds like me. Like I, here I am. I'm going, yep, this sounds a lot like me. How would we know if we have this syndrome? Like how would, other than if there's symptoms, is there, are there tests that we could do? Or, I mean, it, you know, are we looking at genetics to look at how we methylate? So, um, yeah, I think, well, it's complex actually. Um, I think that if there's a good story, you know, not just, you know, healthy all your life, perfect, never had a hormonal problem. Now you're having problems during perimenopause. That's a little different, but someone who might have had that history like you, PCOS, or, you know, um, maybe, maybe infertility issues, or maybe yeah. no one diagnosed them with PCOS, but they always had trouble losing weight and they always had abnormal periods or, you know, someone who said, oh, you know, I've had acne off and on to my life during my life, you know, so they have these little, again, they're like flags for me that say, okay, this is somebody that may have some underlying dysfunction. I'm not going to diagnose them with um, mast cell activation syndrome per se until I do some further testing. You know, there are tests that you can do to look at the enzyme that methylates, um, uh, 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 wait, is, methylase that, right? is that DAO? You mentioned it before, but is it for sure? Is that kind of known as DAO? Methyl yeah, but not methylation. That's an enzyme. The yeah. amino acids. You can measure that. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you can measure the, um, you can look for genetic mutations in the methylation pathway yeah, for metabolizing the histamine. Yeah. Um, we, but, you know, beyond histamine, we are really looking at whether it's the mast cell that's particularly involved in, in these processes. So we're looking for, we're measuring histamine levels in the blood and in the urine. We're looking at 
the other metabolites of histamine. We're looking at other mediators. There's a mediator called leukotriene. There's a mediator called prostaglandin D2. And, and there, there are thousands of mediators. We probably can only test for like maybe a handful and a half, right. really. Um, heparin is a mediator that uh, mast cells make. And I, I think it's really kind of cool to talk about heparin for a second. Heparin is a drug that's used for blood clots. It's a blood thinner. It also happens to be made by the mast cell in minuscule amounts. And you can imagine why it might be made. I mean, it's just trying to keep your body in this homeostasis, right? Everything has to be good. So it produces a little amounts of heparin, but it shouldn't be, it shouldn't be making it if you have normal mast cells that are um, not reactive. But if the mast cell is reactive and, and releasing histamine and maybe other mediators, very often uh, heparin is one of the mediators that is released. Now for women, let's think about the implications. You have all these mast cells in the uterus. They are making heparin, which is a blood thinner. During that time in the, in the cycle, you know, even without mast cell activation syndrome, the mast cells do get activated because there's a fall in estrogen. There's a signal, okay, you know, I, you know, we're going to shed the lining, right? There's that signal to the body. The mast cells are right there and they're producing heparin if they're dysfunctional and heparin is just going to thin the blood, right? And so think about the women who have excessive bleeding, bleeding yeah, abnormal bleeding. And I, and I, we published on, we published a case series looking at Massive targeted therapy for these problems. So these are the women that would be put on the birth control pill, who would be, you know, get, given an IUD. You know, there are different ways to deal with it hormonally or locally, but we were using things like Benadryl uh, or Claritin or or um, suppositories of of antihistamines or other mast cell stabilizers, and the bleeding would stop or the other symptoms they would have would stop. So, so I think that, so these are the things that we test for and to look for to, to confirm the diagnosis of mast cell activation syndrome and to determine whether histamine is a part of their problem. You can have mast cell activation syndrome and not have a histamine problem though. I want to be clear. Oh, okay. <laughs> you can have mast cell activation syndrome and have a histamine problem. You could have a histamine problem without the mast cells involved. Certainly. I just said you could have a deficiency in the enzymes. You can have trouble metabolizing it. Your diet may be too high in histamine. So I'm sure there's a subset of people with histamine issues that don't have, that the histamine issues are not coming from the mast cell. I'm sure that there is, that's the case, but the vast majority probably have also an underlying immune dysfunction like MCAS. So where do we go from here? So I guess in terms of, so it's a, like, you're right, it's complex and it, it's a lot of information. So we are thinking, okay, so I know that for women who are in this phase of life and we are suffering big time. So yes, whether we're having that excessive bleeding, whether we're having all the 85 plus signs and symptoms that are on our website, morphous.com, we are morphous.com. What would you recommend? Like, what's the next step that we should take that a, that we're aware of it and B that we can do to help it? I think that, look, not everyone is going to be able to be tested for this. You know, there are doctors out there who don't understand this. We're trying, I mean, one of my, my um, goals and missions is to educate patients so that they have more knowledge that they can share with their doctors and educate doctors and, and medical pr practitioners yeah. so that they can treat patients. But, but the reality is there are going to be people listening who are not going to have access, right? So what can they do? Right. Um, and so that's, I mean, that's the, that's the, that's the point. It's not, it's not an easy fix. Um, but if you know, let's say that, or you suspect that there may be some issue here, we can talk about dietary changes. We can talk about supplements, potentially things that might be, you know, doable without a physician writing, a, writing a script. Um, but I, I think it's, I think it is important though, that people listening, try to talk to their practitioners and try to educate and give them a link for this podcast and tell them to watch part of it or, or, or print out my publications and hand it to the doctor so they can read about it because there's nothing like having, having, um, medical literature to support what you're saying. Right. So I'm integrative and functional. I do functional medicine, but I'm very much grounded in medicine because the only way we're going to change the world is if we prove to the world that we have 
the evidence to support what we're doing. A hundred percent. Yes. I am a big believer in that. So, so I have publications that, and I have colleagues who have publications. So you share, you share, you share. In the meantime, you try to take care of yourself the best you can. But if, if the symptoms are severe, obviously they have to, they have to get help, you know? So what would be some of the things nutritionally that we could do? So, you know, I, I just wrote an, uh, a blog post about um, histamine, low histamine diets. And, and I want to say, as I said earlier, there's no right diet for everyone. And I have patients that try this low histamine diet and um, it is, you know, a miracle. And then I have patients who, you know, it doesn't matter if they eat bacon or avocado or whatever. Um, the, that's not the problem. The problem is coming from some other food. So, so a low histamine diet may be a start for some people. Okay. Some people may already know that that may not be right. Working with someone like you obviously would be helpful, you know, to guide them. Um, there's uh, low salicylate diets. I'm finding that now to be very, very helpful for some of these patients. Um, gluten-free diets and mm. you know, maybe dairy-free diets. Again, I think working with someone to figure out what the triggers are, I think is important. But you could start with some basic stuff. You know, if you got rid of gluten, what would happen? You know, if you got rid of right. dairy, what dairy, would happen? right? Exactly. All like some. So a lot of that sounds like a lot of the same trigger foods or top allergen foods. It sounds to me like you're talking about too. Would would they? Okay, so it kind of like looking at what it could be soy or it can be, but you're saying it can also be just regular foods that possibly their body is reacting poorly to. Yeah, it could be that I have a patient. I have many patients like this who generally um, tolerate a lot of food, but if they keep the food as a leftover in their fridge and they eat it the second day, yeah, they're sick as a dog, right? Yeah. So just, you know, they're in the bathroom thing. all day, they have these histamine uh, reactions because aged or leftover food may be higher in histamine. So they may be fine generally eating fresh food of various kinds, but not leftovers. Okay. There are gonna be others who are, are gonna be more sensitive to the histamine in food like you know, um, aged cheeses and uh, bacon and things like that. And they're gonna be patients that that's not their trigger. The trigger may be um, chicken. It might be, you know, broccoli. Um, so it does take some some trial and error to, to sort of figure out, you know. Um, and the problem with these elimination diets, of course, I know you would know this, is that you kind of wind up maybe with some nutritional deficiencies. You know, you start to become really restrictive. So I am, I am concerned about like, you know, again, doing this under the care of somebody who understands how to do it and will work with you to, to you know, trial and error these things. But what just some basic things that you can try. You what know, about you know. supplements? Because I'm thinking, are there supplements, like can we take some enzymes that can help with it? So what would you recommend from a supplement standpoint? Yeah, and I, and I want to be clear. One of the things I, I didn't mention is that a lot of MCAS patients are very sensitive. Not all supplements are created equal mm -hmm. and not all supplements are created equal for you for you. Exactly. But awesome. basically, basically the things that are my go-to, let's say, okay. again, working with a patient and monitoring for side effects and all that, things like um, the DAO enzyme, you know, that is available as a supplement, diamine oxidase. Um, um, I have a store and I, you know, I, I have a product that I sell with that enzyme in it. Um, so that can be some people take it before they eat, especially if they're going to eat high histamine foods. I have patients that it doesn't even matter. It's not even related to the food. It's just that it's a, breaking down the histamine that yeah. their mast cells are making and they get some response. Um, it may not work for some people, right? This is the challenge. It's about, you know, again, trial and error. Um, uh, vitamin C and quercetin are natural antihistamines. And quercetin in particular is a mast cell stabilizer. Now, there are going to be people who are going to be sensitive to, to vitamin C, um, some of the vitamin C on the market is corn-based. Maybe corn is not good for them. So maybe they need a tapioca-based vitamin C. Sometimes vitamin C is just too much for their mast cells right now, you know, but sometimes quercetin is good. Quercetin is great, but then you have to think about other methylation pathways that it might interfere with. So I don't know if you're familiar with this enzyme called COMT. Yep, the comp, yep. <laughs> enzyme. So that's an enzyme that breaks down hormones. Right. So we're talking about hormones. We're talking about potential, you know, too much hormone, too little hormone, depending on the, the stage. Right. Well, COMT is that enzyme that catechol O methyltransferase. It's a methylation hormone that uh, helps to metabolize catecholamines. 
another and right and other yeah and other hormones and quercetin so it's a type of enzyme what what happens genetically is that the the enzyme itself uh, can be slow or fast and you're going to get one copy from each parent so you're going to have a situation the best case scenario actually is if you got a fast enzyme and a slow enzyme from each of your parents and they would sort of like like balance out and everything would be fine. There's no normal enzyme, by the way. That's the way, it's only fast or slow. So in order to equal it out, right, you have to have one of each. But if you have the enzyme that is particularly slow, it's called the MET-MET, quercetin actually binds to that enzyme. It actually interferes with that enzyme's ability to break down these hormones and catecholamines. And so um, if you have a slow enzyme and you slow it down even more with quercetin, these are the people that wind up with really high dopamine levels uh, and they have a variety of, of symptoms. They tend to be very, very sensitive to a lot of things. So so I can't always test COMT on every patient, but I generally can get a sense. And when I test it, it's often you know helpful. Um, you can sometimes get a sense of whether they're going to do okay on quercetin. But, but if they have a really fast uh, COMT, quercetin is amazing because they, it helps um, increase dopamine in their brain. They feel a little bit better, helps their executive functioning. So there's um, so quercetin is one of those things that I think um, in the functional medicine community is given out like water. And I would say a great supplement. I love it, but I'm going to figure out which patient I think needs to, to trial it or not, you know, um, vitamin D by far, I, I should have started with vitamin D. I can't believe I didn't do that. Um, because vitamin D, there are vitamin D receptors on the mast cell. Mm. So vitamin D. you don't have enough vitamin D, your mast cells are going to be more reactive. You have enough vitamin D and the mast cells perceive a stable environment. They're going to be stabilized. I have treated MCAS patients with vitamin D alone and have seen tremendous improvements. I love that. I mean, for me, having, I, I always say there's like several tests we should get as we get into this phase of life and vitamin D is one of them to, ha- to be in the optimal range because it's an easy one that we could fix, right? We could take our vitamin D with our vitamin K2, MK7, like it's a way that we can actually, so it's so nice to hear that you're saying you're seeing great results just even from, you know, not everybody obviously, but just from taking vitamin D and being in that optimal range. I mean, there's so many processes, right? That vitamin D is involved in. It is a hormone, um, but you know, women who have um, hormonal imbalances, who have the start or or the middle of insulin resistance or prediabetes. So many of us um, have. Which which is really yeah exactly, and so that is where vitamin D levels are going to be at their lowest, and so those are the women who are going to need it even more. I would argue that everyone needs it, right? Um, but to help to help all the other things that your body needs to do, you need vitamin D. So, so that's the first thing we we check, we measure the level, and we aim for right. a certain amount. And 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 the way I think about it, I have patients who will say to me, and you might even get a response from people like, "Oh, I can't tolerate vitamin D." And the way I think about it is that there are some vitamins in our body that are essential, right? Vitamin D is an essential vitamin um you can we we can't manufacture it right we have to we have to have some something like sun or the supplement to to be metabolized right so um you can't really be allergic to something that's essential to your living right so people who react to vitamin d are often reacting to what i'll call the excipients or the fillers or what it's what's bound to or the formulation of it maybe lanolin um, which is what a lot of vitamin D comes from, D2. is what they're sensitive to. So maybe they need a, a vegan uh, vitamin D. 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 Right. So I, I think I'm, I want to say that because I think it's really, um, it's one of those things that I hear a lot. A lot of patients who are in the state, they don't feel well, you know, they're 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 struggling with it. We're talking about women in menopause, right? They're, they're having hot flashes. They feel um, they're depressed. They feel down. They're gaining weight. Um, you know, things that can change that course, you know, like simple things are going to just going to be important. Help really. them. And vitamin D also for mood, I mean, for so many different things. So it's, yeah, it's an amazing, uh, amazing hormone. Like you said, it's not a vitamin, it's a hormone. So 
before we wrap up, I think what would be important to say is I just want to go over those symptoms again that some of, you know, that some women might be feeling um, that can maybe they'll be, maybe they'll think, oh, maybe this is me. So let's, let's review those symptoms. And then I also want you to talk about, um, like you, you mentioned a little bit, but histamine foods, because one of the things that I notice is that sometimes we'll all eat something right away. So this goes into the symptoms is that all my nose will start to run. I'll notice it. I literally just put the food in my mouth and already I'm like this. I'm like, I'm like, so I think it would be cool. Like not, I think it would be a good idea to talk about those symptoms and then also the type of foods. Yeah. Oh yeah. Perfect. So when I think about symptoms, really it's from head to toe and it can involve any, any or all um, systems in the body. Um, for mass cell activation syndrome in particular, it's usually you need two systems involved. So from the top of the head, migraines, very, very common symptom of MCAS. Um, uh, definitely things like um, uh, reflux, GERD, asthma, um, so GI symptoms, um, respiratory symptoms, certainly allergic-like symptoms could be, you know, potential for some, for some, but not for all, right? So you have more the allergic type reaction you're describing with your nose. But some women don't have that. The reaction is going to be a headache or dizziness or um, severe like sleepiness. Like they have, to, they have to go to sleep right away as soon as they eat a certain food. Um, they, um, they feel like they're gonna faint. Um, there can be uh, blood pressure and heart rate variability issues. Um, they may be more likely to have tachycardia um, and their heart rates tend to run higher. They may have changes in their blood pressure, heart rate during different positions. They get up too fast. They feel um, feel more off. That may be a, a, what we call an orthostatic problem. Um, neurologic stuff. So, you know, beyond the migraines, um, some, some can, can um, uh, they can experience uh, neuropathies, um, numbness, tingling. Um, I think about things like, like temperature regulation issues is a very common problem <laughs> in breast patients. It's interesting, right? Yeah. You know, we think about definitely, I mean, there's some other stuff going on that's causing hot flashes during menopause, but I would argue that the mast cells are probably involved. And a lot of my patients are already having hot flashes for like 10 years before they're even in perimenopause. And so, you know, the question is, is it really the estrogen? Is it really like specifically the hormone or is it the changes in the hormones causing the mast cells to produce these these mediators and some of the mediators are making people, women hot and sweaty. Some are making them cold and they can't get, they can't warm up. And maybe they have thyroid issues also not uncommon and that can also affect it. Metabolic issues are very, very common. Um, uh, rapid weight loss out of the blue, rapid weight gain out of the blue, difficulty losing weight in general, just having having problems with insulin resistance and metabolic syndrome. Um, Definitely mood, you know, mood instability can be associated, sort of that overlap between the perimenopausal, menopausal period in women and, and MCAS. Anxiety, depression, you know, there's there are other life changes that happen around that time. And so a lot of women are told, oh, it's because, you know, you're under a lot of pressure and you're going through menopause. And I would say, I think it's physiological very often. Huh. Um, sure, in combination with everything else going on in your life. But it's also that, that we have to think about what's happening inside our bodies. Um, and the food. Pain, muscle pain, et cetera, et cetera. And as you're saying that, I'm like, wait a second. Everything you're mentioning, those are some signs and symptoms of menopause. And some of them are also signs and symptoms of a hypothyroid. And like, so it's like everything is so interconnected. Right. So that's why it gets really difficult for so many of us in this phase, because is it this, is it this, is it that, is it that? So that's where it kind of becomes confusing for us and, and somewhat overwhelming. So let's, let's talk quickly about the foods. And then I want to just circle back before we end about what they can do, because I always want to leave off on a positive note in terms of, okay, so if this sounds like me, what can I do about it? So let's talk about the foods and then we'll go there. Okay. So again, there are foods that um, contain higher levels of histamine, and there are foods that cause an increase in release in histamine. So um, you know, there are like things like strawberries 
can actually, they may not have a histamine per se, but they can definitely cause a histamine right. reaction. Um, citrus, so if we're talking about fruits, citrus, stra strawberries, top tier in terms of um, you know, potential for reactivity. Um, then aged, things that are aged. So meat that's aged, um, cheese that's aged, anything that has time to sit is going to build more histamine levels. And that's part of why some people eat those foods, right? Actually, they, yeah. they actually, maybe they, maybe they need more histamine. Maybe they have too low histamine, you know, or obviously the taste will be more mature, right? Um, things like, you know, processed meats, nitrates, things like that, definitely going to be a, be problematic. Um, I'm probably forgetting some off the top of my head. I have to what look about alcohol. List. How does alcohol fit into it? Yeah, no, lots of alcohol actually can be pro problematic. Wine in particular, red wine worse, but white wine still, because it's a fermented process. Anything that's fermented is going to have higher levels of histamine. So if we talk about ferment fermentation, things like, you know, a lot of the functional medicine community talks about mm -hmm. kimchi and sauerkraut and having all your fermented foods. But that's why we say like, if you, if it does, if you don't feel right eating it, then it's not for you. Right. So yeah, sorry, go ahead. <laughs> Cause I'm like, yeah, I, love, I, mean, I love those foods. I think they, they really can be for the right person. I, I have MCAS patients who don't really have histamine issues, but have other issues who do, you know, other chemicals are being released. Let's say they do very well on kimchi, but, but I have to do other things to balance them, you know, for, for their other symptoms, but others, yeah, they're going to be sick the minute they put it in their mouth. So again, lots of variability, but these are anything yeah. that's fermented or aged tends to be a little bit more problematic. And most patients, I think most people like who are listening to this, they already know, they already know on some level what they feel when they eat. And so paying attention to that, even if it's not a specific histamine food, there may be something else about what they're eating that there's some other chemical that's being released from that food um, or the mast cells are just perceiving it as something bad for them. And they, you know, so they should avoid those. Things. So how would you typically work with a patient? So, you know, is this something that we get under control? Is this something that, because you were saying it's complex, which it's it obviously sounds very complex, but is it something like, okay, so we're going to work with you. We're going to give you whether it's medication or nutrition or supplements, and then we're going to get it under control. And then you can eat these foods again. Like explain a little bit about that whole recovery process. So I'm an optimist by nature, and I am also very passionate and very relentless with my patients. And they know that like, I will never give up. So my goal for patients is really, and I, and we see this all the time is to get them to a state where they are more tolerant of their environment. Can we take mast cell activation syndrome away completely if they have it? No, they've probably had it for a long time, but can we stabilize these mast cells so that the food is better tolerated, so their hormones are better tolerated? And I believe there is, there's plenty that we can do. Again, every woman and every patient is gonna be different in how we approach it. Some patients it's going to be more diet and, and supplements. In some patients, it's going to be medication. Um, in some patients, it's going to be, right? So it's just, it, it really varies. But the goal is definitely to get them to a point where they are, um, they have stabilization of their mast cells. So stabilization means that it's just not going to explode and release these chemicals that cause all these inflammation um, that quickly. So, um, and that's, and that's something that can be achieved. I think that Certainly during the perimenopausal period, it's a little bit definitely more difficult right. because you can't control those estrogen spikes. You can't control the insulin spikes completely. Right. You're doing stuff with diet. You might be doing stuff with hormones. You might be doing, you know, uh, liver support and liver detox. But the bottom line is that that's a more difficult time. Doesn't mean it shouldn't be, you know, you shouldn't try things. You know, sometimes we'll use a antihistamine, especially if there's a histamine issue that might stabilize mast cells so that maybe they're not as reactive to the hormones. Sometimes you do need to use like a birth control pill or, or a bioidentical hormones to just show the mast cell that things are stable. What they perceive as changes, okay? They, they perceive changes, small changes in hormonal levels, in these um, different things, actually even like barometric pressure. So women who think about, oh, you know, when the, the barometric pressure goes um, up, uh, or down, actually goes down, they get migraine um, or they're in a plane and that causes increased symptoms, different bar barometric pressure. So the mast cells are reading the environment, temperature change, right. 
um, whatever. So, so if we can get them to not see those changes as much, um, and uh, we can do whatever we can to stabilize them, then there's a lot of hope in helping you know, the symptoms. And if, if um, for those who are listening right now, and they want to reach out to you, how can they get in touch with you to work with you? So um, I have a, I have a, I have two websites. Um, the, my practice is called AIM Center for Personalized Medicine. And so the website is AIM Center, P as in Peter, M as in Mary.com. Um, my own website, drtanyadempsey.com. Um, and if, you know, I write a lot. So the websites have blog posts, um, social media, Facebook is Dr. Tanya Dempsey. Instagram is Dr. Tanya Dempsey, MD. Um, and, uh, you know, YouTube and, you know, things like that. I just like to put information out, but yes, they can reach me um, through the websites. Yeah. We're going to put all the links below that way. That way, if anybody wants to get in touch with you, they can. I mean, this is fascinating. And thank you so much for doing this because I think, like you said, so much more education is needed. And I have a feeling that I'm going to come back to you again to do another interview <laughs> so that we oh. can kind of like go back and dig in a little bit deeper because it's, it is, it's a lot of information. And I think giving women hope that perhaps there's something that they can do to help with some of their symptoms, especially if they've tried a lot of different things. Like you alluded to it before you were saying that sometimes let's say they go on hormones, but they don't, they're not feeling better, or maybe they're feeling a little bit worse. Maybe that's something to explore. Correct. Yes. Correct. Mm, okay. I think like the, the take home, I didn't, I didn't address your, your nose thing though, but, but, um, but, but I just, I want, I'll say that, you know, that's just probably your muscles in your nose releasing histamine. Oh, okay. There you go. Thank you. Interesting. But, um, but, but I think like the take home message, I think the thing that I, I want people to understand, women to understand is, you know, they, they know their body better than anybody else, right? So I can be sitting here and saying, you know, that I think it's this way or that way, but you know, they, they know their body better, right? So okay. communicating with their practitioners to, to help them understand, you know, what they're really um, dealing with, I think is so important. I think women in general have um, been, I hate to say mistreated, but generally not well respected in the medical community, oh, unfortunately, for yeah. many, many years. And so I sort of, I, I like to, my goal is let's educate people. I love to educate everyone. Let's educate women on how to advocate for themselves and how they can bring this, you know, to their practitioners so that those practitioners can learn and help them. I love it. What an amazing way to end the interview. Thank you so much, Dr. Dempsey, for doing this today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That was amazing. I love Dr. Dempsey. I learned so much and I hope you did too. If you enjoyed today's conversation, please share it because the more you share shows you care. And I appreciate your time that you spent with us. If you have any questions, please email us at info at wearemorphous.com. As always, thank you for listening and I'll see you at the next interview. Remember, You've got this.